Welcome to The Water Table, the podcast that floats slowly, spreads widely, and sinks deeply into conversations about the human relationship with land, water, and community. I'm your host, Pete Deneen. My guest today is Brad Lancaster. And if you're listening to this episode, chances are you already know of him. Brad is a permaculture teacher and designer, as well as a published author renowned for his expertise in rainwater harvesting and water management. Brad helped legalize the harvest of street runoff in Tucson, Arizona, and runs a program there to reforest the city with native trees. Brad teaches the public how to identify, harvest, and process many of the native plant foods neighbors are planting in their neighborhoods. For example, he organizes community milling events where you can grind native mesquite pods into flour, which is being utilized by a growing number of restaurants, breweries, and home kitchens. I was driving cross country from New York City back to California this spring when I dropped in on Brad at his home in downtown Tucson, where he harvests more than 100,000 gallons of rainwater annually for drinking, irrigating food-bearing shade trees, and gardens. He does it all on one-eighth of an acre, with less than 12 inches of rainfall per year. Brad and I took his goats for a walk and talk in his neighborhood. He took Lyric, the mama Nigerian dwarf goat, and I took her kid, Skunk, who's black and white. And as we walked, neighbors would stop and ask Brad about invasive species in their yard, or how to build a shade structure that both blocks the summer sun and channels the winter rays. I got to witness myself the full synergy of a system that Brad describes in this episode. Now, Brad and I didn't get a chance to record when I dropped in on him in Tucson this spring. The conversation you're about to hear was recreated from an audio recording from a 2019 interview that we did with Brad. But we just had a La Nina winter, which was one of the driest years ever recorded in California, and we are locked in for another La Nina this year, which loads the dice for another dry winter. With compounding crises in California and water at the root of it all, this conversation felt too important to keep saved in the cloud any longer. We did release an episode with Debbie Franco from the governor's office reflecting on excerpts of his interview last year. But for this podcast, I've written myself into it. It has been reformatted and re-engineered to make for a more engaging and digestible conversation. So without further ado, Brad Lancaster. So Brad, the goal of the Water Table podcast is to present a sort of water toolkit that people can walk away from this episode and implement, like ways of thinking about water, but also physical solutions that folks can use. There are a few in my mind that I'd love for you to cover, rainwater, gray water, and stormwater. And you're pretty far along in your rainwater harvesting journey in Tucson in your third decade. What are the benefits that you've seen from harvesting rainwater in Tucson? Yeah, well, um, right off the bat, a far more livable, uh, lovable community. Um, so... In, in my neighborhood, on my block, when we started, um, there were desolate, solar-baked, barren streetscapes. And uh, um, we moved there because it was affordable. And uh, not only was it affordable, it was centrally located, so we knew we could get around by bike. We didn't have to rely on the automobile. But we went right to work, along with our neighbors, um, trying to bring more life into it. And... Uh, by planting the rain, planting indigenous, multi-use, food-bearing, and so on, vegetation. Um, now, what used to be Bleak Street uh, is known as the Canopy Street, you know, the Food Forest Street. And it's not just the street, it's the neighborhood. So this neighborhood that used to have a reputation for um, high crime, high drug use, uh, cut-through, hit-and-run traffic, um, now is known to be one of the greenest uh, neighborhoods in town. It's we have citizen-driven bicycle boulevards. We tried to turn these um, excessively fast uh, um, uh, streets into bicycle boulevards initially, and the city said no, you you can't because it's on the books that these are thoroughfares, even though it was through neighborhood. But by as a neighborhood putting in water harvesting traffic calming by growing street side trees, which make the street feel narrower, even though it isn't. Um, and then getting more people out and about walking, uh, biking, so on. Um, it, it forced the slowing of the traffic, not a speed limit sign. It was just the, the reality of the experience. And so as a result, the city recognized it. And two years ago, 
they, after 20 years of work here in the neighborhood, uh, turned it into a bicycle boulevard. I love that. It was the reality of the experience that ultimately did it. When I arrived in your neighborhood, Dunbar Spring, it was immediately apparent to me that something different was happening here. Like, I didn't even need to look at my GPS. The foliage just increased, the traffic diminished. I knew I was close. Traffic calming chicanes started appearing. And then I recognized your place from the street photos I'd seen. But I'm curious, how the movement developed? Like, how much was you pushing and then the community rallying behind you or? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a combination and it was ever changing where more of the weight of the effort was. Um, so when, um, when my brother and I moved to this neighborhood just north of downtown Tucson, um, there was this uh, program going on where they were um, uh, asking the residents uh, and the businesses in the neighborhood, what do we want as a community? And um, so it was a great opportunity to learn more of the community members. And um, one of the things that was right there is people wanted more life. They wanted trees. They wanted gardens. So we jumped on that. Like, oh, well, if you already want it, and we do too, now being new, brand new residents of this community, then we're not imposing anything. We're just stepping up to help you with what you already want. You're just helping them to actualize the desired solution. And you look now, people are drawn to Tucson for that reason, right? The sort of oasis within the maritime desert. Yeah, and something that's driven that in Tucson is um, uh, fairly recently, um, the only water for Tucson was its groundwater because we had we had killed the river, so we'd killed our surface waters. So it was just the, the groundwater, and we were depleting that really quick. So the city was actually sinking. Um, and that in, instilled, due to necessity, a higher water consciousness. So... Um, People replacing turf with native plants um, started way earlier than other parts of the state. Um, but then uh, Central Arizona Project Canal Water came in um, and slowed things a little bit. But there's been a renewed interest because there's already um, that value of water conservation. Um, and that not only was there a value, people could see, wow, there's these unanticipated benefits. So like when people swapped out turf for native plant landscapes, yeah, their water went down. But the unanticipated benefit is all of a sudden they've got hummingbirds, butterflies. All quality of life. Yeah, all this stuff coming to them, like the, the mobile native uh, uh, view from the window, <laughs> you know, of all this life out there. Um, and you know, that was really enriching. Um, and some of the work that uh, I've been doing with, with desert harvesters and whatnot is to further showcase, well, what about the edibility? What about the medicinal properties of these native plants? What about the craft materials you can make from it? Which, and that knowledge has always been there, but had started to be forgotten, wasn't being spotlighted regularly. So we just turned a spotlight on it again. And, um, and then... Uh, with the water harvesting work and stuff I do, elevate it even further by saying, hey, you can have a really lush, vibrant native landscape, more lush, vibrant, and dense than the native desert if you incorporate these simple, passive water harvesting strategies because you're getting just as much rain falling from the sky as the desert out in the wild, but the desert out in the wild is not stopping the water loss to runoff but in the water harvesting landscape, you are stopping the loss. So you've got more water. And then you go even further, <laughs> if you're pulling water off the street, reducing flooding downstream, you're also increasing the amount of available water from the income side. So, um, so we're getting far more productive native landscapes for the food, the medicine, the wildlife, and so on, and the shade. What are some of the common misconceptions about harvesting rainwater? Um, okay, so one is you will be taking water away from people downstream, um, and not the case, okay? Because we're basically harvesting the rain that is falling on our site, and pre-development would have infiltrated that site, 
Okay, now post-development and compaction of it, now there's more runoff than normal. Okay, so by harvesting rainwater, we're going back to normal conditions by keeping that water on site rather than letting it run off. And at the same time, generating more evapotranspiring life, cooling the environment, seeding clouds so we can get more uh, rain um, and just making for a much more joyous life spot. You're basically mimicking the natural absorption of water that the land would have done itself before the impervious surface was placed on it, like your rooftop or your roadway. So the need for this in the desert environment is pretty obvious, right? It's dry. People can see that. Does it make sense to harvest the rain in a wetter climate, like the Pacific Northwest, or one of the areas we work is in Tuolumne in the High Sierra, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you just need to look at, well, what's the driver in your local community? So we should never have a generic approach because that's boring. Um, so uh, it was surreal and, uh, and whatnot when there used to be the generic aisle in the supermarket. Um, but uh, you don't see it anymore um, because it's not stimulating enough. So um, uh, if we are just applying same thing everywhere, um, we're going to be missing the boat on how could we more uniquely adapt it to the unique conditions or subconditions of that site? Um, and that's going to make just life more interesting, travel more interesting. I don't want to get off a train or <coughs> whatnot coming into another community and saying, hey, it's just like home. I don't want that. I want to see what makes this place what it is, what's unique about it. And then, so people harvesting water, managing water, whatnot, we should be doing the same thing, asking, all right, what makes, um, the, what's unique about the water resources here, its potential and its challenges? And how do we tap into that? And that's a big reason why we've been focusing on native plants is because they are endemic, they are unique to that area. They have adapted over millennia to that area, as opposed to using exotic plants you might see anywhere else. Um, and, uh, the other thing by focusing on the native plants in this work, it's forcing us to, um, make a really good attempt to at minimum not overlook or forget the amazing potential of what is already here. Okay. We, we it's forcing us to look at it and then we see, oh my God, this is a much more productive food producer, um, in extremes as well as norms, uh, has far more beneficial wildlife habitat. So for example, mesquite trees, it's the native legume, it's the native carob tree, it has carob-like sweet pods that we can harvest. Um, the native mesquites, uh, in to, native to Tucson, in Tucson, uh, they can support over 60 native pollinators, whereas you get a Chilean mesquite planted in Tucson, so it's a non-native mesquite planted in our environment, that can at most support 12 native pollinators. Okay, so going to have a fraction of the wildlife that is supporting all these other elements, their pollination surfaces, if you plant non-natives. Um, and, there's, and there's so many more benefits in that regard too. I'm wondering how the natives will fare as the climate warms. You know, I think people talk about climate change and, you know, an, an increase of two degrees Celsius, three degrees Celsius. And they may think about that as happening evenly around the world. Warming won't be happening evenly. It, some places will be hotter than others. So I think about a place like Tucson where it's already hot and dry, and I'm wondering if the if climate change's impact won't be as dramatic for the native plants there as it would be for a place like Tuolumne in the High Sierra, where the difference between frozen precipitation and snow versus rain is a matter of a degree. And so... In, that, in the highest year environment, you have a pretty rapid ascension of the snow line and the types of vegetation that will be able to survive there. Uh, I think it's the effect, the impact is going to be a lot more than perhaps it would be in the desert. Is that something that you're thinking about when you're selecting plants? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we'll we'll see. Um, so uh, at minimum, what I like to do when looking at a plant palette is I like to see, all right, I, I want to get at least some core native plants that have a very wide climatic range, meaning the I like I love the velvet mesquite tree. It can take much hotter, drier conditions than we find in Tucson and much colder and wetter conditions than you find in Tucson. So I'm kind of, a, um, I got a good good thing going there depending on how things go with climate change. But then I'll also plant some stuff that might be on the edge. Um, so it, it works well in Tucson now, but if things really start to get dry or hotter, um, without the water harvesting, I know they're gonna suffer. But with the water harvesting, maybe we'll still be able to ride that out. Brad, something I recall you saying on our goat walk when I visited you was that 80% of your block are now harvesting rainwater. And I got to see firsthand the fabric of your neighborhood, of, of your community, people volunteering, getting involved. Can you talk a bit about how all that started? Yeah, well, okay. So one thing was when we started the neighborhood tree planting in the Dunbar Spring neighborhood where I live, um, we, uh, um, so that, that idea had already come from long-term residents in the community. We saw that that's what they wanted. We jumped on it. Um, and uh, when we were organizing it, we made the decision, this isn't for any tree. This is for native trees um, because we knew we'd have a higher success rate. And then we went further. We said, it's not for any native tree. We're going to emphasize the trees that produce food, medicine, multiple benefits so that we will be growing a native food forest, a native medicine forest, uh, a native um, craft shop, and so on. Um, so the intent was for this forest to be a, a producer for the community. Um, and then we figured we'd be able to entice more of the community members into it. And we would have a direct cultural connection to all the different peoples and the history of the area and how they use these plants. Um, so really tapping to what's unique in that sense of place. Uh, then the next thing was, um, so I had taken a permaculture class um, just before moving to the neighborhood. And... Uh, um, had become really aware of the water situation, our depleting groundwater. So we said, okay, no tree is planted unless we first plant the rain. Um, and that's with wa simple water harvesting earthworks. Now, when we started, they were too small. <laughs> you know, we didn't quite yeah. fully grasp. We learned later and, and expanded. But um, uh, so we're, we're pushing the edge right off the bat. So it was really important that in the involvement uh, of the community we're, we're doing a lot of education, doing it in a fun way, um, and setting up examples that they can see the effectiveness of this. So um, we had to make this public or we had to involve the community because a big driver for us is we knew we had to re-spongify, re-vegetate, re-enliven the watershed. And you cannot do watershed scale work if it's private, <laughs> you got to get everyone involved. Um, and by doing so too, we also learned a lot from community members. Like in the past, there used to be tree-lined streets and you could walk barefoot from our neighborhood to downtown Tucson in the middle of summer. Now, unfortunately, they were exotic trees, short-lived trees. And so when they died, that was gone. But we were able to tap to that whole history. So when we were talking to the elders and saying, well, how do you feel if we replanted that forest? Different species, but replanted that forest. And like, they're all in, okay? And their stories are inspiring the newbies like us. So we're getting that, that cross across generations, that bridging generations. Um, so all, all that was really key. And then when we went further with the, uh, we realized, hey, our street side um, tree, plant, tree plantings with the basins, um, they're not big enough basins because we noticed, yeah, we get a lot of rain falling from the sky. We can capture in those basins, but the bulk of the rain and the water is hitting the street and running down the street, which flow like creeks in a storm. So we realized we got to make the basins deeper than the street and we got to pull the water off the street into the basins. When we did that, the growth rate exponentially grew, okay? And um, production and everything. But we were 
we're playing with fire because it was illegal at the time to cut the street curb to allow street runoff into street side plantings. So again, we had to involve the community. So we started with our um, pre-legal pilot project done uh, in a guerrilla manner without the city's initial knowledge um, to prove the concept to our neighbors. They saw how these plants thrived without any additional water inputs from water metered and thus costly water. It was just free water from the street. And like, we want to do that. It's like, okay, great. So we, we built that desire first through our little demo project. And then with the backing of the rest of the neighborhood, we approached the city and said, look, we've got a lot of people that want to do this. So how do we legalize this? So we were, we were growing political will before we w entered the political, if you would, system. And we weren't running for office, but we were asking for policy change that um, we got mayor and council behind. So we we're having to grow political will amongst their, their voting citizenry. The community wanted it. They might not have known it at first, but when they saw it, they were like, oh no, yeah, this is what we want. And then the city got behind it. Yeah, well, I think I think most everyone wants a uh, a lush, verdant environment in which they live. But where we took it a different way, it's well, the way we're going to get that is not by importing or extracting water from others. We're going to use the free on-site waters we already have. So this is not only going to improve our life, but everyone else, because we won't be taking from anyone else, including the wildlife. Uh, and instead of bringing in plants from elsewhere, we're going to use the plants of here. And that's dramatically going to improve the quality of life for the, the native wildlife of this place. Um, that was the big shift. And we've since taken it another step further. So we are not going to fertilize with imported or extracted nutrients. We're going to use the free nutrients of this place. So by creating these uh, basins, these these rain gardens, these water harvesting earthworks. They're bowl-like shapes that collect not just the rain and the street runoff, but they collect the leaf drop, the bird poop drop, the birds hanging out in that vegetation, the seed, um, the leaf drop, and everything that's on the street that flows in with the street runoff. So um, we're dramatically increasing the organic matter um, and the habitat for soil life and soil microorganisms so, and then we're getting more mycorrhizal fungi whose hyphae or hair-like roots fuse with the roots of the photosynthesizing plants. So the fungus gives the plants water and uh, minerals, whereas the plants give the fungi uh, sugars from their photosynthesis. So it's this wonderful collaborative arrangement that can inspire us to collaborate with neighbors and so on. But it also dramatically increases how much more moisture that we've now harvested can be uptaken by the life because they're collaborating uh, and there's more of that life that can collaborate thanks to collecting organic matter as well as water. And as that runoff goes into the basins, they go through a natural filtration process as it percolates through the organic material. Yeah, and Mitch, Mitch Pavo Zuckerman, a researcher at the University of Arizona that's now at the University of um, Maryland, he did a lot of great studies and uh, he found that um, we, uh, we definitely had elevated levels of natural free filtration of those street-borne toxins um, due to all the life uh, and organic matter we've got in the soil. Furthermore, he was finding that by using organic matter as opposed to like mulch, organic mulch, leaf droppings, cut up prunings, as opposed to rock or gravel, um, we had twice as much soil moisture as a rock mulched street side basin um, and twice as much uh, soil organic matter and soil life as a rock mulched basin. So it's all just added um, confirmation that we're going the right way. And, and the way we're going the right way is mimicking a natural system. Because in a natural system, when leaves fall, no one picks them up with a rake or a blower. Uh, and you know, leaves are called leaves because we're supposed to leave them. So uh, we're not just leaving them, but we're actually gathering additional leaves coming with the runoff off the street. So 
do those basins need maintenance? Like, do you need to muck them out or replace the mulch as it decomposes? Uh, we, we, you need to pick up litter because litter will flow in off the streets along okay, with yeah. the organic matter. Um, that's the biggest maintenance thing. But then there, the other part is, uh, there's, there's so much of what life craves within these rain gardens, these water harvesting earthworks, that life grows much more abundantly. So along a street where you've got cars and bicyclists and stuff, and along footpaths where you've got people and pets, um, we have to prune more than you would otherwise because there's more stuff growing. But the great thing is that's just further feeding the system because we just cut up the prunings and put them right back into the basins to add the organic matter. So definitely, at least for myself, I'm motivated to prune because I know I'm just refeeding the system. It's going right back in. Yeah. And when we have new plantings in the neighborhood, say a, 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 a barren section of the neighborhood that we're now starting to reclaim with plantings, um, I can bring my prunings in to the next block and cut it up, and they've got a free source of mulch right there. You're basically jump-starting the soil building process. So previously, Tucson was pretty much completely reliant upon groundwater and water from the Central Arizona Project, which is diverted from the Colorado River. The rainwater and the stormwater component, is it wrong to think of them as sort of like new water sources for Tucson? I'd say it's the same water source we already had, but what we're doing is we are um, mimicking the greatest teacher, the the life and the systems, the living systems on this planet that enable life. So there is a limited amount of wa- fresh water on this planet. So, and I hear that it's less than 1% of the water on this planet is fresh, you know, not salty or whatnot, and available. Okay, but yet the planet does not run out of water. So we're mimicking that. When Tucson started to drop its water table and we lost the, the killed the river and all that, we weren't cycling water multiple times, like using it, getting rid of it, all right? And uh, so what we're doing with the water harvesting earthworks and whatnot is we are capturing that rainwater, we're using it for all this on-site life and productivity, and the surplus is being fed into the soil, goes past the root zone into the aquifer, or it overflows the system and uh, goes into the local surface waters. Um, so by doing all this, we can enable our creeks, our rivers to flow more consistently than they did in the past. Because instead of this crazy, very short-term flood-inducing pulse of water, um, when water is just being rapidly drained off a site and we get these spike flood flows, we are dramatically slowing down the release of the water from the watershed and the sites in Tucson. We're banking it in the soil and the vegetation and the life. So the release of that water, the surplus, is much slower, much longer into the dry season. So we have these longer, more resilient and dependable uh, water flows and much less of the spike damaging flood flows. And I mean, that's just, so it's not a new water. It's just, it's the same water, but we're making it go further through more uses, more potentials. Normally we think of gray water and rainwater as being separate resources. But in this case, your rainwater, you use it and then it actually becomes your gray water. Yeah. And at my, at my home, um, when I started this work, I captured rainwater to use for irrigation and, uh, I was using city water to drink and cook and bathe with, uh, now up my game. Um, so I learned from that initial system. So now rainwater is my drinking water source. It's my cooking water source. It's my bathing water source, washing water source. And now, so it was in the past, the source of my gray water used to be the city water. Now the source of my gray water is the rainwater that then becomes gray water that then goes into the rain gardens. So I'm cycling that mother source more times. Very cool. How does the city feel about you drinking rainwater? They have no problem with it um, because I keep my domestic rainwater harvesting system completely separate from the municipal uh, water system. 
So no cross-connection. No cross-connection, no liability for the city. That's their concern. I, don't, I can't say they're concerned about me. Um, uh, but I'm much healthier and happier living off the rainwater because I'm learning more. There's no salt in the water, no kidney stones to my water. Um, it's, uh, I'm very connected with what, where the water comes from, so I'm highly motivated to uh, maintain my watershed, which is part of the city's watershed, and make it better. Brad, I'm really curious to know where your inspiration came from. Well, uh, so um, I I grew up in Tucson and was steadily seeing how the water situation was getting worse. You know, I'm, see, the water table's continually dropping, um, creek flows are ceasing, water holes drying up, springs drying up, and uh, that was very dis- distressing. Um, and uh, when I finally took a permaculture class, I learned started learning about solutions, or at least, if not the solution, how to go about thinking about how could we find and formulate solutions. Uh, And that was a big shift for me in my education, because prior to that, it was really focused on articulating problems. So um, I I loved that solution-based orientation. And then I had the opportunity to visit this uh, water farmer, this water harvester, subsistence farmer that got all his water from harvested rainwater in the driest region of Zimbabwe. And uh, it was phenomenal to see what he had done because uh, his site was an absolute oasis compared to those uh, around him because he he planted and infiltrated the rain rather than draining it. So his water table continually came up instead of going down. And uh, he was the one that, that where I first heard the term plant the rain. And uh, where that came from is uh, um, he was talking about how um, usually when people learn about water harvesting, they want to put water in a tank, which is what he did when he first started. And, uh, and he said, yeah, Brad, I realized um, that uh, I was a very selfish man when I harvested rainwater in a tank because it was only for me and my family. No one else was ever going to get that water. And I realized this is not the legacy that I want to leave my community or that's ultimately going to help my community. So he then really started focusing on the earthworks, the rain gardens. Because he said, this, this is water for you as well as me. This is for everybody. Because I am benefiting, but the but I am also infiltrating, I am banking, I am investing the surplus in the larger natural system. It's going to make it to the aquifer that we share, the watershed that we share. Um, and I'm going to be reducing flooding, erosion, and whatnot downstream. And uh, that just, I love that. And I also loved it because here I was talking to a subsistence farmer who had been blacklisted by the government, so he couldn't work in any field. So even without a job, he is doing really well. He and his family are really healthy. Was this traditional knowledge passed on to him, or did he just figure it out himself? He had to figure it out, because he was forced into this position where he, being a black African in what at the time was Rhodesia, so a country named after Cecil Rhodes, a white man who probably had a serious ego problem. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, when, he, when the, the government found that he, he was being politically active, striving for democratic reform, where everyone, regardless of color of skin, would have one vote equal say, um, he was fired from his job and blacklisted uh, so he could never get another job. So he, uh, he was literally uh, chained. He had an- chains around his ankles, so he couldn't leave his site. And he, in chains, he is digging swales, digging fruition pits, digging earthworks, creating terraces, all the stuff on his land, because he has to make the most of what he has. He has no other option. Um, and he saw that where water lingers, life grows. Where water drains away, you lose soil, life drains away. So uh, 
just by observing, he said, okay, I'm going to mimic what I see naturally working, and I'm going to try and fix that which is not working. And that's what got him to where he was. And it was amazing for me because it's like, look, there's nothing theoretical about this. Um, this works. Uh, because you experienced it. You saw it and you understood it. Yeah. And I knew, I said, if he could make this work, I don't have any chains around my ankles. I can certainly make this work. Um, but uh, I think uh, something that is frustrating for me is when I've had the opportunity to collaborate with Mr. Peary and, uh, and, and the many amazing people he works with in Zimbabwe, um, I feel so much more alivened than I typically do in the US um, because we're, we are immediately improving people's quality of life and the quality of life in that watershed. Whereas in the US, so often these strategies are seen as an accessory. You know, it's like, I wanna do that because that's what's in. Um, but people can still extract water, you know, hurting others from say the municipal system and they're not directly gonna feel that. The necessity isn't quite there in the same way. Yeah, the necessity is here in the U.S. just as much, but we don't see it. We don't feel it, maybe. Yeah, we don't. We don't feel it. We've got this infrastructure, um, this very expensive, energy-consumptive infrastructure that buffers us from uh, the immediacy of the effect of all our actions. Whereas there, you immediately see the the effect of your actions and inactions. So, and the something I just thought I found mind blowing is uh, a lot of the population was racked um, not that long ago with HIV. So uh, a lot of men um, in their 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 dying the, at the end of their life they had no money they had nothing to leave their family in any monetary way. Um, so what they would do is the last of their life energy, they would create these water harvesting structures and they would plant them out. And that, uh, that is what they left for their family. Gosh, that's beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, so we have a different context here, obviously, than Africa. But our need to make ourselves more resilient is the same. Resilience is kind of a difficult term for folks to envision in a, in a tangible way. So take California, for example, the fire threat. Fire is a massive vulnerability because the systems we've built are severely misaligned with the landscape. I mean, we are at the point now where we're experiencing natural disaster-like impacts even when there's no fire at all. The conditions need only be ripe for fire, Santa Ana wind, uh, low humidity, high temperatures, and we shut it all down. We are so vulnerable, we have to turn the power off to millions of people in order to mitigate that threat. Or this summer's hot topic, the drought. How many communities or how many folks had water retentive landscapes in place where they were recycling water or harvesting rainwater those folks will be able to sustain this dry period with minimal strain on outside sources. So when we think about the term resilience, that's kind of what we're getting at. It's being able to buffer the impacts of a drought, of a fire, of extreme temperatures. I was in Austin this winter for the week that Texas froze. Talk about the need for resilience building on practically every level of society. That community and its grid were so underprepared for that event. And more than 700 people died as of the latest report. Texas doesn't have a unified coroner reporting. So these journalists went county by county to ascertain a more accurate death toll and they found severe underreporting. So we have multiple communities in a variety of geographic and climatic locations that are really having their vulnerabilities exposed 
not just all over this all over this country, but all over the world. And I think maybe people are finally looking at the branch they're standing on and saying, "Oh, wow, okay, yeah, this this could fail." Yeah, and uh, there's um, Brian Thacker. He's this uh, guy who does fire-resistant landscapes in Arizona. After the massive Rodeo Chetiskai fire, um, he was prowling Google Earth, and he would find these green spots in just a sea of black char. And, uh, and then he'd call up the local fire marshal. He said, hey, what's up? I got the longitude and latitude of the site. What's going on here? He's like, oh, yeah, those folks were harvesting rainwater and gray water. They didn't burn because the vegetation around them wasn't tinder dry as it was in the other areas. So there is that immediacy with... Um, you know, catastrophe. Um, but, and then something I've done, I've done in my life, I don't know if everyone will want to go this route, but um, I force myself into a learning environment. So um, I said, all right, um, I am not going to have potable city water available to any me, to myself anymore after this date. So I've got to get my water harvesting system in place before that. Um, and then I, make another rule for myself. Um, I will not allow myself to use any pump um, or any pumped water. So I better figure out how to make this work with gravity or I'm gonna be lifting and carrying a lot of water. Hand pump, buckets? Gravity has been the main thing um, because that's the easiest, it will not fail. A hand pump can fail, a bucket can fail. Uh, Not as likely to fail as a drip irrigation system, but uh, and so I'm thinking long-term too of how do I make an easy, convenient life? So I'm, I'm designing in an inconvenience in that there is this date in the future at which I'm no longer going to allow myself to use the city water, but I am also forcing myself to how can I design this gravity-fed water harvesting system to be as easy, convenient, and joyous to use as possible? So I have made it more convenient to use than the city water system was that I've stopped using. And you have the reliability of your own system. And now I've gone and done the opposite. I just moved back home to California and gone and made life inconvenient for myself. I'm hand carrying buckets of gray water from the house out to the landscape. But between that expenditure of effort and as a means for keeping our landscape alive during this hot, dry summer and keeping our home more fire safe, it's pushing me now to look at a more efficient system, a gray water to landscape installed system. I'm wondering about the native people of the Tucson region, the Tona Odom. Did they have traditional rain harvesting structures? Yeah, so the indigenous peoples of uh, uh, southern Arizona, Tone Autumn, yes, they've got lots of uh, traditional water harvesting strategies. And is there a movement to preserve and pass on those methods? Yeah, uh, it'd be great if there's even more. But one of my mentors, uh, Clifford Pablo, he's an elder um, in the San Javier district of the Autumn Nation. He, uh, um, he was taught by his grandfather how to... Uh, do auction or runoff farming. So basically in the monsoon storms, they would create a, a, a small debris dam in the arroyo, the dry creek bed, that when flowing with monsoonal floodwaters, um, he would divert some of that up into the floodplain where he had his garden. And the amazing thing about these systems is they are bringing in all kinds of rabbit poop and uh, mesquite leaves and organic matter. So you're getting... Uh, the, the water for free, along with this huge nutrient dump. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't cost you anything monetarily. Um, so uh, he really inspired me when um, I started to play at the idea of how do we capture street runoff? Because in my urban context, my arroyo, my dry creek bed, was the street. Mm-hmm. So um, I knew from Clifford's stories that uh, this works. <laughs> um, I just had to figure out how to breach the uh, the concrete curb 
Um, so I could get water out the street into, into the floodplain of the public right-of-way. Um, and, uh, and it's worked phenomenally well. <laughs> you figured out how to breach that curb. So Brad, I'm in your neighborhood in Dunbar Springs and I'm observing the native plant palette you've selected. And as I walk around with you, I'm noticing the native management practices you emulate. I see you preparing your lunch using ingredients sourced from a sustenance line that really couldn't be any closer to you than it is. I mean, I watch you harvest a prickly pear pad from your backyard for your lunch. And you've done all this using rainwater and stormwater. There's a definite sense of place here that I don't really see elsewhere in this country. Can you describe that and kind of break it down for me? Yeah, so here, kind of distilling some of that down, here's, uh, so when we're doing sense of place, sense enhancing uh, design, especially within landscape, we are abandoning the conventional model of plant a plant from some other place with water imported from some other place, fertilized with nutrients imported and mined from some other place. With instead, you, we're going to plant the free on-site waters of here. So we're going to use local water to water local native plants fertilized with local nutrients, the leaf drop, the bird poop and stuff. Um, and furthermore, we're going to use the local historic ethnobotanical knowledge to utilize uh, what the resources that are grown in this condition. Um, and we're also going to utilize the new peoples of this place that uh, to create new fusions, new hybrids uh, of foods. So uh, like uh, from India, Indian naan bread made with native mesquite, yeah. Um, and mesquite tortillas and whatnot. So uh, um, that just, and, and prickly pear borscht. So that we all, which that's another inclusive community building thing. It's not like, we're only gonna value this experience, this knowledge. Everyone has something to contribute, um, but what is gonna make it work particularly well for here, wherever here is, is um, when um, we are creating these fusions that have direct roots connections to what is unique to this place, but is welcoming in and hybridizing with things that come in from elsewhere with new migrants, being they wildlife, be they people, be they seed, what have you. Brad, thank you so much. Yeah, and if people want more information, uh, can't recommend enough uh, my all new full color revised editions of my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, uh, volumes one and two. Also check out my website, tons of free material up there, um, videos and whatnot. It was the primary reference for the rainwater harvesting module in the permaculture class I just took at Quail Springs. And your site, harvestingrainwater.com, has excellent content. I'm using it to design my own rainwater harvesting system at home right now. Yep, thank you. Uh, and that's harvestingrainwater.com. And uh, if folks would like some information on uh, native food plants, uh, check out desertharvesters.org now and their cookbook, Eat Mesquite and More, a cook cookbook for Sonoran Desert Foods and Living. Now that is focused on the Sonoran Desert, but even if you're not of the Sonoran Desert, check it out because it's meant to be a template that any bioregion can use to create their own uh, unique local cookbook uh, for not just eating, but living. Oh, cool. How would I go about using it in my bioregion? Well, okay. So for example, you'd open up the cookbook and you'd see it's, uh, you open up to any month of the year and it's telling you what's harvestable at that time of month, but also what should you be planting at that time of the month? Um, 
so it's not just about extracting from the wild foods of that place, but how do we make more of them? Uh, and uh, you're going to see a diverse array of recipes from different cultures, um, old cultures of this place, new cultures, those, those fusions. Um, and there's lots of stories of people working in various ways with these native plants in terms of food, medicine, propagating more, bringing it into the school system, bringing it into uh, uh, the food systems and, and so forth. So you're, you're, you're learning stories of people working in different contexts and you could approach similar people or look for similar similar people in your area. Um, you can use these recipes to inspire fusions that are unique to your area. I love this. And it kind of gets at the idea of culture and what informs it. Culture is informed by landscape, you know, like your clothing. The clothing of your culture is what is climate appropriate for your area. The food that you eat in your culture is what grows there. Your home is constructed out of materials found in abundance there. If we're cooking with local and seasonal food, that's an entry point into everything that we're talking about here. Like, I grew up in Ojai, an acorn-rich region, which was the staple food of the Chumash. Yet, I have never had a meal with acorns, I don't think. Well, and here's another key thing is um, while the majority of the plants in the cookbook and the Eat Mesquite More cookbook are Sonoran Desert based, there's a lot of them that cross over or have family members cross over to other bioregions like the oak. The acorn is in our cookbook. You got abundant acorns, much more so than we do here. So all that is directly applicable here. Brad, thanks so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. You can also check out neighborhoodforesters.org, which showcases more than 25 years of rain-irrigated neighborhood native food forestry work in the Dunbar Spring neighborhood and gives many tools and information that other neighborhoods can use to create or help evolve their own neighborhood forestry efforts. We'd like to acknowledge the Department of Water Resources and the Tuolumne County Resource Conservation District, as well as the residents of California, whose support of Prop 84 made this podcast possible. Thanks to Ryan Evans for editing and mixing. Our theme music was done by Todd Hannigan. Thank you to Charles Upton, who recorded the original interview with Brad. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Water Table.